<laughs> oh my gosh, I know. All right, so should I go, go ahead and kick us off um, and basically just do a quick round of introductions? How does that sound for everyone? Sounds good. All right, well, you know, I, it seems like we've got a few guests here. Welcome to our very first Ask the Experts live Q&A panel. Thank you all for joining. Amongst our guests, we've got three decades worth of maintenance and reliability expertise re represented across, I think, two, three, two different countries, three <laughs> different time zones. Sound about right? <laughs> well, right, right now we're in the same country except for you. Oh, oh, oh fine. That's, that's fair. <laughs> we're we're um, stealing your reliability talent, right? Oh, man. Well, let me quickly introduce myself, and then we'll do a quick round of introductions for, for you guys. Um, and then we'll jump into all the questions that we've received over the last couple of weeks. So a little bit about myself. My name is Ryan. I'm a CEO and founder of a company called Upkeep. We build software for maintenance and reliability teams. Um, I got my first start into this space. Coming out of Cal Berkeley, my first job was working in a manufacturing plant. And my role there was thinking about how do we improve our process and make our line speed go from 20 feet per minute to 21 feet per minute. But then as our entire business realized the, the dire need for better process, we shifted the entire uh, thinking for our business to shift it from just thinking about improving line speed to improving reliability. Because if we did that, that would have the same outcome and effect saw the software that was out there, said, hey, we've got to build something much, much better, and um, started a company called Upkeep. So that's a little bit about me and, and my company. Let's kick it off to, to George. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, my name's George Williams. I'm a founder and CEO of a company called Reliability X. Uh, we focus on implementing holistic reliability, so working with the uh, plant floor all the way up to senior leadership. Uh, to ensure everyone understands their impact to overall reliability goals and, and truly implementing uh, sustainable change. And I'm Joe Anderson, CEO of Reliability X, and what he said. <laughs> <laughs> you make it pretty easy. All right. <laughs> and Rob. So, yeah, so I'm Rob Kalvaroski. So I've started, I started in reliability, would have been about 10, 9 or 10 years ago now and worked in, in mining for a while, and now I've moved over into oil and gas, so moving up in the world, I guess. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of different things. Well, great. We have a bunch of different guests from so many different industries, so many decades of experience. I'm super excited to help lead the session today. Um, so over, just to give everyone a quick heads, heads up, over the last few weeks, we've been fielding a bunch of questions from the community. We've compiled the, the top like eight, nine, 10 questions that we've received. And the goal for today is to, just to have a pretty in informal conversation about some of the most impactful questions that, that our community gave to us. So if you guys are ready, give me a thumbs up and we'll jump right into the very first question. We're always ready. <laughs> All right. All right, so the very first question is what is today's real impact, advantages and disadvantages of machine learning in predictive maintenance? Pass. Who wants to take pass? <laughs> I mean, I could I can take this one. So, um, I mean, in terms of in terms of machine learning, there's a lot there, right? So, I I think that. The benefits, obviously, the benefits are you can sort of hand off a lot of the analysis to the models, right? So you don't have to spend your person's time. Like I developed a machine learning algorithm at my previous job to look at oil samples. And so we had people on my team that their full-time job was to look at samples and alert customers on whether there was issues or not we were able to show just on a pilot from someone who learned machine learning on the internet was about 50% time savings. So that's the good side. Now, if we're going to move over to the disadvantage side, I think there's a lot there. So a lot of companies right now, they're able to sell these types of products because they sound cool and, and whatever, but a lot of companies also buy those products and don't see success. So, a few of those things lack a process, 
not understanding that, you know, when you're installing sensors, when you first turn those, like that switch on, there's a lot of maintenance that you're going to have to do on just the sensors, no matter the equipment that's paired with the sensor. And then that process, right? So when this thing, when you turn it on, there's going to be, if you're in a plant that has, has kind of lacked maintenance uh, for a while, you're going to have a lot of alarms to deal with. And you got to get over that overwhelming hump at the beginning. So I want to take it a little, a one step back as well, because we've talked, I, I hear this term being thrown out a bunch in the industry of machine learning, predictive maintenance, AI. How much has it infiltrated actual industry? Do you, is it, are you guys seeing like 1% of, of facilities that you guys consult with and work with implementing some sort of predictive maintenance machine learning algorithms? Or is it like, you know, 10% or 50%, 100%? So Joe, Joe's shaking his head. <laughs> um, not to say that it's not out there because I know it is, but I haven't seen it anywhere um, at all. Yeah. Like I've seen it, I've seen it on the big, the big companies. So we're using it here at my current, current role. Um, there was some, like my previous company in mining, they're using it. Some of these companies have also hired data scientists to do their own in-house platforms. We'll get it. We could talk about that, but yeah. I haven't seen anything really successful though. Right. So this right. question was specific as well like for, for example your oil and gas um they always spend a lot of money when, yeah. when uh, prices are good um they'll invest a lot of money in technologies where food manufacturing they won't spend any money yeah. um hardly any doing any especially on the ai side we can barely get them to acquire predictive maintenance tools yeah. <laughs> let alone the uh, machine learning so I, I think a lot of it is industry specific as well yeah. Plus, if you're a top 1% company, they're probably doing it anyway because they can afford to. Right. So I think to sum it up, what I'm hearing is like the question actually centered around what is today's real impact? And it sounds like the impact that it's having today is actually very small. And it's only the top 1%. And it's also industry specific of companies that can actually afford to use this have the personnel and staff to be able to analyze, let's call it machine learning predictive maintenance that centers around um, you know, sensors and all of these fancy terms. So mm-hmm. it's actually very interesting because I think, uh, again, a lot of people get thrown, uh, thrown into this industry hearing all of these fancy terms, but then when we take a step back and we realize like, how much, how, like, are people actually doing this? It's only really the, I think you mentioned, Joe, the top 1%. Well, it's, it's, you know, when I started getting into this more and becoming more familiar with everything, it was discouraging. Yeah. See all these people talking about all these cool things and they're doing all this stuff when I'm not doing any of it. And I'm going, man, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed trying to just understand how to develop a maintenance strategy that all these people are doing these cool things and and the more you get involved in the industry the more you realize that sexy things are cool to talk about and um it's a perception game so (laughs) in the end all that matters is what are the results right no matter what you're doing what initiative you're doing right am i gaining extra throughput am i driving waste out of my system are my skill sets advancing you know, am I doing things that we see improvement on? And really, that's where the rubber meets the road, I think. Awesome. So we've got a few guests in here as well. I just wanted to let you guys know this is a, you know, a live session. So if you guys have any questions, throw them in the chat box at the bottom right-hand corner. You know, I'm looking at them. I'll review them, and uh, we'll, we'll help answer those questions too. Um, so the next question that we have up on this list any advice on dealing with union crafts to create and generate buy-in from the crafts on maintenance, reliability, and DE activities? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my hand up and ask you guys, what does DE activities stand for? Defect elimination. <laughs> Defect. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. There we go. 
All right. I so, I, you know, who knows? I didn't write the question, so I hope. Olympics. It could be way off. <laughs> um, well, coming from a union background, honestly, it never made a difference to me whether it was union or non-union. It was about leadership and how you deal with people. So I would do it the same way I would do it with a non-union shop if I were to lead a defect elimination initiative. And that's one, bringing awareness. So training, you know, full, fully providing support and me removing obstacles, whatever the obstacles are that they face. Um, it's my job to remove those as the leader to make sure that they're successful. And then creating a minor budget when it comes to defect elimination, giving them a little bit of my budget and some leeway to go out and, and to solution some of these problems. Um, so I don't think it really, at least in my opinion, it never made a difference whether it was union or non-union. Hmm. I would agree. I think that it, the, ultimately you've got to earn the respect of the people at the shop floor. And the way you do that is by listening and removing problems. And so if you intently listen, listen to understand, not listen to solution, understand exactly what issues they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis, and you can make some of those things go away to make their day-to-day -day work easier, you'll earn some respect. And, and I, but, I, but like Joe said, I don't think that's different whether it's union or non-union. Right. Yeah. The only thing you have is some things in the contract that you have to watch <laughs> out for. Right. right. Um, like... You know, some strong unions where if I pick up a wrench as a manager, yeah. I'm stealing work from them, right? So it's just some of those little things, those nuances that you got to watch out for. But honestly, there's not a whole lot different. We're still dealing with people. Yeah. And people need direction. They want to be led and, and they want to know that you care. And, I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. You make it sound so easy, Joe. <laughs> no, it's not that it's easy. It's just it's it's the same, right? I mean, if um, I meet you in person, I want to be the same person that you see as we're interacting here. I'm not going to change who I am as a leader because we have union here or non-union here. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah. I think the major reason the unions exist today is because of the lack of leadership. If we took care of our people, there'd be no need for a union, right? And so <laughs> I think that leadership key is the, the main significance of the whole issue. So Rob, any, any experience, I have no personal experience dealing with, with unions. Um, but I, I think where the questions, California. sorry. You live in California. Yeah. 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 It's a union state, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I think where the question's coming from, it sounds like someone might be struggling with trying to generate buy-in Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like they might be part of a, of a union company. Uh, like any, any advice for them as they, as, as they might be struggling to create this buy-in? Number one, know, know the contract, right? Like you've got to know the contract because you have to understand the operating context you have to operate within. Um, so I, my advice would be to understand that contract, understand how you have to operate to engage with, with that workforce. Um, and then second, do everything you can to earn their respect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Definitely, I, I learned a bunch about, about unions just now. <laughs> um, so the third question that we have here on this list is, can, can you talk about the importance of bombs, BOMs, bill of materials. Rob, you want to take that one? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, like it's, <clears throat> for me, like I don't really have too much experience with it. However, like other than the obvious things, like bill of materials helps you procure parts, understand what you're actually running. Like you can hook up your spare parts management system to it, right? And so it's like, one one of the actually one of the issues we're having with right now with with one of uh, the one of the extremely old equipment we're trying to deal with is that we don't have drawings we don't have this bill of materials we don't really know what other than what's there we don't really know how to like replace it with something that's new because it's obsolete 
And so if you have that information in your system, it makes your job a lot easier. Maybe not today, but in 50 years. Yeah. Gives way more visibility into, you know, if something were to go wrong, what do we need? What are the parts? Give us that, you know, the entire bill of materials. Uh, George, Joe, any, any insight there? So the bill of materials serves a couple of purposes. One, it allows you to procure easier, right? So you can make selections directly inside most CMMS systems and say, create my purchase requisition. Um, the largest advantage though is in the efficiency of the planner itself, right? So the planner today may be having to go walk things down or go find um, the spare parts drawings or maybe even go investigate or write a work order for somebody else to open something up before they can figure out what parts they have to order to truly fix yeah. the machine. Part of the planner's job at that point is to then put those, that, those parts on that bill of material list so their job becomes efficient the next time they, do, they have to go um, do a similar job on that same asset. And so the bill of material list really serves a, a much higher purpose of making the planner more efficient in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's making all parts and components of the entire business more efficient, more effective, gives you better visibility into your equipment, parts, spare parts, and also helps with planning and scheduling. So absolutely. Um, so we got a question actually uh, from, from Prem. Let's see if we could, ha- let's see if we could help answer this one. So how do you see <laughs> career progression, old wolves being in process of being replaced by fresh blood. Oh no. So, so I think this question is like career progression. We're starting to see a shift in the industry, right? We're seeing like the, I guess the old wolves being, I would maybe not replaced, but we're starting to see more younger, uh, more of the younger generation um, come into this industry. Um, yeah, boomers are retiring, right? And so they have to be replaced with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the question then? How do you fill the gap? Or so I think the question from Prem is really, how do you see career progression for, let's say, the boomers who maybe aren't about to retire just yet, but still want to stay in this role and not be replaced? I'd shift, them, I'd shift them to uh, more of an advisory coach and mentor for everybody that's younger, right? I mean, they have all the tribal knowledge. We don't do a very good job capturing yeah. the knowledge that these people are leaving behind when they leave the organization. So I would use them to help the younger generation develop standard work procedures, develop troubleshooting guides, try to get everything out of their heads that you possibly can to help the transition um, so that the learning curve is smaller and not so steep. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point there because I think as, as the younger generation comes into these businesses, I think that there's a tendency to feel fear of like, oh shit, my job is going to get replaced. But I think what you're saying is, you know, you and us, you know, being in this business have so much industry knowledge that you could really go into a very impactful role by advising and helping train the younger engineers. Yeah. That, All that, that boils down to adding value, right, Ryan? So whether, whether you're going to continue as the reliability engineer or whatever that position is you're in today, you've got to be able to add value. So continue to learn and figure out how you can add value to the organization which may be in coaching and mentoring the next, you know, I've always looked at my job as I, when I was a practitioner of my job was to run myself out of work. So if somebody else could do what I'm doing so I can go someplace else. Right. And so I I don't think that changes with your age. I think you've just got to find where you're, where that niche is and make sure that you're continually learning and, and looking for a way to add value to your organization. I don't think that changes based on, based on your age. Your strategy for doing that may change, but you still have to add value. Absolutely. All right, we got. Thank you for that question, Prem. That was a, that was a really good question. Um, we have another question from Sidrati. Um, how can we set minimum and maximum values 
for bill of materials and reorder points if we don't have a consumption history. All right, that sounds like a chicken or the egg problem right there. <laughs> no, there's there's a formula too, but if you don't have a history, um, you're just gonna have to guess. Well, you have to <laughs> you have to you have to get the data points you can get right. Yeah. Somebody knows the history of the machine that's on the site, right. yeah. and they can give you a relative idea as to how often components are failing. You may not have good data inside the CMS to be precise with that, but somebody knows it. Plus, you're purchasing it. So maybe you don't have the data in your CMS system, but maybe it sits in your procurement system if they're not one and the same. And so, you know, it, it's a little bit more legwork. It's a little bit more analysis that has to happen. But I think you can gather some data points that will put you in a relatively good position to, to create that initial um, reorder point quantity. It's not like it's going to lead you to stocking 12 and 20 of something either. I mean, you might be off by one, right? You might stock three and five when you really need two and four or whatever for your min-max. And it's not going to hurt you. You can improve upon that through time. Um, so it's not like, you know, you're going to be ordering and setting min-maxes for a ton of stuff and being way off base by doing that. All that being said, if you've got 20,000 components in your store, oh, yeah. this is not a small exercise, right. but, but you, you, you can get relative information and make some assumptions. Yeah. And I, I think this, just for me, like not specifically on this question, but it's, it's a broader thing too, right? So it's not just min maxes, this is everything. Like I hear all the time, hey, we don't have failure histories, what do we do? Hey, we don't have this history, what do we do? It's really the same answer. You got to do some work. You got to go find the old guy who's maintained it for 20 years, buy him a box of donuts and talk to him. Like that's really <laughs> how it is. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Like that, that, you know, not having the consumption history, find that so many times that yes, we don't have this like beautiful clean history that, that we would hope to have in order to make these big decisions. But I think what would, Joe and George, you guys mentioned was you just got to start somewhere. The, the impact is going to be way worse if you don't start than if you're, you know, one or two off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Great question. Um, so we got one more question coming up here. So what, what are uh, best practices to prepare a plant changeover in order to align the generation of PM activities for rotating assets with redundancy in CMMS. All right, let's see if we could boil that question down. <laughs> so, Who got that one? <laughs> a plant changeover, yeah. Well, you gotta understand some context, right? So plant, is this an automotive facility where they shut down and do a complete changeover? Is it, you know? It depends on the, I think the question is about redundant. So let's say you have a pump skid and you got a primary and a secondary pump. I think the question is about how do you manage the PM strategy and when do they switch? In other words, from lead lag. Mm -hmm. okay. if, I, if, if, if I understand the question, but I could be way off. Right. Which Let's is, go with that. <laughs> <laughs> but if it, yeah, So yeah. there's a lot of debate about, you know, should you do a half and half scenario? Should you run one third, two thirds? And I'm sure Rob probably has a way more statistical analysis in this arena than I do. <laughs> But because, because most failures fall in a random pattern, I, I'm not a believer that it can't be a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, you're not gonna see the exact same wear out pattern in pump one versus pump two. And so for people to take so much initiative in trying to figure out the right ratio between, you know, should it be one third, uh, two thirds between lead lag, I, I don't think it makes much of a difference. I think if what's generally happening in most plants is probably they run the lead until it fouls and then they turn the lag on and it fouls right away because it's been sitting there so long. So if you've already got some kind of strategy, you're way ahead of most people. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, creating a PM that, that reminds the plant to change over lead lag is a good thing to do. The other thing to consider is, well, if you would normally PM that pump every, you know, let's say a uh, thousand hours of runtime or, 5,000 hours of runtime, well, since it's going to be a lag half of that time, do you then make, it's still 5,000 of runtime, but 
most plants are based on a time frequency. So instead of it quarterly, maybe it's every six months, maybe it's every four months, um, instead of every three months, right? So you've got to be able to alter that as well. So I think, A, just like with the, with the min-maxes, have some strategy. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't put a whole lot of weight in, in the argument of they shouldn't be equally run. I think that's a, a nonsense argument. <laughs> well, let's ask the reliability. Let's ask the real <laughs> Tell me how wrong I am. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I don't really have a good answer for this one, to be honest. Like, All right, next. no. Yeah. <laughs> it's really like I kind of fall in the same camp, right? I, I think a lot of people they don't under they kind of underestimate the damage that just equipment just sitting there does to the equipment. And I mean, I liken it to this one time I, I left my car at the airport for, I think it was four or six weeks. I forget how long it was, but when I came back, the battery was shot. I had to get a new battery, like change the oil, like the whole bit. Right. And it's like, people don't think about that in their plant. And then also like, given that, like, let's say you have two pumps next to each other, like the one that's not running it's vibrating, because oh, yeah. it's running, right? So you're causing failures there. So you have to, you have to flip it on. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. And I think it depends, right? It depends on industry. It depends on criticality. It depends like so many different factors. Um, yeah. That's a tough one. <laughs> All right. So next question we've got, uh, what are best practices pre to prepare weekly look ahead plans how do you update them on a daily basis with a new event? So I think this is like best practices for scheduling a week ahead, you know, our, our look, look ahead plans. And then also like best practices on updating them every single day, because we know we create plans. Things always change. Do you guys have any tips, advice? <laughs> yeah. Number one, um, don't alter that plan based on today's events. It's a, <laughs> you, you, your supervisors manage daily work, not, not the plan and not the schedule. So after that schedule is set, it should be set in stone and you either achieve it or you don't achieve it based on, based on what those daily events and how they impact things. And you let supervision level folks alter their day-to-day -day operation. In terms of developing that weekly schedule, I'm a big believer in getting the voice of your customer and understanding what work they want out of the backlog. And this can turn into a really long conversation and a really long debate, but I'll break it down as quickly as I can. Number one, it's not your work. You don't own the asset. If you did, you'd be able to turn it off whenever you want. So since it isn't your work, you don't own the backlog. So find out who owns the backlog and make them tell you what's important. Once you know what's important, get it on a schedule. Then find similar work in similar areas from similar craftspeople and schedule as much work as you can in the areas they wanted you to work already. That way you get two work orders done instead of one. Then you'll become much more efficient. So you base that schedule on what your customer wants. You fill it up based on logistics, right? Like UPS doesn't deliver packages based on the timestamp. They deliver packages based on where you live. So you, you want to load that truck up with as many work orders as you can and let them go get that work done. Um, so that's kind of my strategy for a weekly schedule. And of course, the PMs go on first, and uh, and you want to have a sequence in, in terms of how you put that work on there. But find out what's important to your stakeholder, and then find similar work based on logistics and based on craft skill sets and uh, things of that nature. So um, well, the, the only change to the schedule is with an event is that something lower priority drops off yeah. because you've now lost time to be able to execute that work, right? So your lower priority work, the paint the fence and the, you know, mop the floor work gets pushed off of the schedule. If you're having a problem prioritizing work, then I would work on your prioritization system. If everything is a priority, then nothing's a priority. <laughs> your weekly schedule has to be set up to where you can drop off some of that work because events will happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that you adjust the whole schedule for the week. You just drop off whatever it was that wasn't as important because that work's not going to get done. Yep. 
I'm curious. So a lot of our customers, they, they work in that, that backlog. They do a weekly backlog review. They do like a retrospective at the end of every single week. We've also talked to a few of our customers that said that what they do is they allocate, let's call it 10% of the time as just unallocated. No, I'm, no, don't do it. <laughs> no, that's no. not a best practice. It's a good starting point because yeah. you're still reactive. It's hard to gain control, but as you get better at it, you shouldn't allot for any of that. You don't yeah. plan to have emergency. Yeah. yeah. Fair <laughs> point. You don't plan for emergencies, but they happen, right? They, they, they do. So, so here's why, Ryan. So, so you're going to schedule, let's say you're scheduling 100% of your time. Yeah. Right? And you only are getting 85% done. That 15%, you can run a report on what didn't I do that I said I was going to do. Yeah. And what did I do that meant I couldn't do this? Yeah. And now I analyze this and determine were they really emergencies or not? Yeah. If I'm only scheduling 85 and I'm hitting 85, am I ever going to look at that? Probably not. I'm ne so I'm never getting better. Right. Absolutely. So I, I think what I'm hearing from you is like that push towards 100% is the push towards excellent. Yep. And you might not always hit that 100% compliance, but at least that'll give you the, the reporting structure to analyze what happened yep. so that you can improve. It's a progression. So one plan I was at, we were reactive about 80% of the time. And when I left two years later, we had two breakdowns a month mm -hmm. on 15 lines. So there's no reason not to schedule 100% of your work, right? But as you get better, you know, you're going to start to see the gaps. And then you're going to ask questions around some of the work that your maintenance guys are getting called out to, like, I can't get the machine start, have to push the button. It's like, that's not a maintenance issue. That's an operations issue, right? When the machine breaks and it doesn't work anymore, that's when my guys should be out there executing work. So what you'll find is a lot of maintenance mechanics are doing the work of operations trying to fill that gap and your time is wasted and you're not getting any of the work that's important to the asset done. And so being able to analyze all this stuff, you're not going to be able to do it if you don't schedule 100% of the time. And that yeah. brings up another really good point that everything you do must be a work, a work order. If yeah. it's not a work order, you can't do it. So yeah. it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, Rob? <laughs> similar, similar uh, sentiment there. Well, I, I've just been I've been digging into work orders, like thousands of work orders lately, and and what George just said, I'm I'm getting uh, I'm getting fired up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it's uh, if it's not documented, you didn't do it. Right. <laughs> very fair point. I mean, doing the work is only as important as being able to analyze why it was done so that we could prevent it from happening again, especially living in this, this industry. Um, so the, the next question are actually somewhat relevant to what we've been talking about. How do you start and apply a reliability maintenance program for a reactive plant with no relevant asset data history? seems like a, <laughs> seems like a big one. Maybe where do we start? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, like, there's a lot to start, but it's, it's like that we sort of answered part of that question with the, with the bombs, right. In terms of like finding the data, but that's really, I wouldn't start at the data. Like what I would really start with is like, what are my maintenance practices? Like, what does my plant look like? Is it clean? Is it tidy? Is the, or like, are the tools where they're supposed to be? When a PM starts, like, do the guys have all the tools they need? Do they have the spare parts they need? Do they know what work they're trying to do? Like, basic, basic, basic stuff before I worry about, you know, doing a Pareto on my failure history or, you know, RAM modeling type of stuff. Do you see, like, are there certain checkpoints within to getting a plant to let's call it a reliability, like full on reliability program. Do you see it as like, first we need to, let's call it like get our asset history or hierarchy in as like step number one. The next thing that we need to do is move everything into the digital system. The next thing that we need to do is run PMs. Then before we actually get to doing a RCM pro 
like a full-on RCM program? Do you see separate? Step, step one is you got to stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. All right. Stop the bleeding first. You're a reactive organization. So the way I've done it, and I don't recommend this for everyone, but the way I've done it is I don't even look at my PM program. I walk straight out to the floor. I ask every operator, what is the issue with this machine? Uh -huh. And then I bring in my maintenance guys and we solve the issue so it doesn't come back. And we just systematically move through every piece of equipment on that line until that line is now reliable and, and i'm telling you it takes a week or two weeks maybe depending on the complexity of your line right so there are some complex lines where it's hard to solve those issues but most of those problems within a few weeks you can have your line up and running to where it's manageable and now you can start shifting to maintenance strategy and focusing on maintenance practices but if you're that reactive and you don't stop the bleeding it doesn't matter anything else you do isn't going to change the fact that you're bleeding, right? You've got a cut clear across the main artery and you're putting band-aids on scratches on your elbows. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. No, 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 Joe, you got to start by AI and yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, this, this is basic. That's not it. That was it. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so you guys are both right, right? Part of stop the bleeding is, can I be a good reactive organization? And I think some of that is what Rob's talking about. And I think once we get to a point where they can create um, or alter the way they do business in a more reliable fashion, I think what they're kind of looking for is, you know, what do I own? How critical is it? How does it fail? What am I going to do about it? Right. And, but you can't do those things until you get the, the bandwidth to do that work. And since we can't just hire 12 more people to continue to be reactive while we go build a strategy, um, you're both right. You've got to become organized and you've got to stop the bleeding. And then you barter that resource time, right? Mm -hmm. The resources that are no longer reacting to the same thing day to day or day after day can now go help focus on and collect your equipment hierarchy, can now begin to help you with criticality analysis. So it becomes a, it becomes a bartering mechanism. Mm -hmm. You've got to eliminate some inefficiencies first and then barter that time to become effective. And then depending on, are you set up for planning and scheduling? Do you have a planner and schedule? Most, a lot of organizations don't, right? And so once you get that established and you become more effective at that, that frees you up even more time to go out and continue to improve the process. Yeah. yeah if you're a completely reactive organization, a lot of times you have to do what I term growing flat which means you can't add headcount, but you're going to alter your organization. Yeah. So as you gain efficiencies, you hire a planner. That planner creates efficiencies, and now you have free resources, and you, you convert one to a reliability engineer or a lubrication mechanic uh, or, or you know, a reliability technician that's collecting data. And so you, as you gain those efficiencies, you transition that to become more effective. Yeah. George, that's a really good point there because I feel like people's first inclination is typically like, we don't have enough resources. Let's go hire two more people that can nobody, help us run a. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, nobody ever has enough resources. Ask every maintenance manager out there. <laughs> They'll all tell you they don't have enough resources, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. the rent time's at 20%. Yeah, so. instead of 60, we're, yeah. Yeah. they could have four times the amount of work getting done with the same headcount. Yeah. Right? And so we all need more resources. Yeah. So I'm going to try to summarize what I heard here for, from you all. Uh, the first one, before you start an RCM program, stop the bleeding. Uh, the next thing that I heard is, all right, let's, let's get that asset registrar and let's start building that history. Start focusing on maintenance planning and scheduling. Build more, uh, build more efficiencies into the organization, which will that then allow you and your organization to then start thinking about maintenance reliability programs. The one thing that I'll add in to, to this section here and this question here is we often get, we often get asked this question too, like when does it make sense to apply an entire strategy for my organization? What we always say is don't try to boil the ocean, pick one asset, pick the most critical asset you know, and run a full RCM analysis on that one before you try to do it for the entire plan. 
because to us, you're going to learn so much. Would you agree with that approach? Do an RCM? On a single, on a single asset before? Yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, if you have a criticality analysis done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. On a whole plant doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. You know, but I agree with the approach of not boiling the ocean. I think yeah. even, even, and I talk about this a lot in the training classes for, for planning and scheduling. A, a lot of times we'll have planners in there that say, well, I plan for 40 people. I plan for 40 people and I, and they just can't be effective. Like you can't, you cannot effectively plan for 40 people. Um, <laughs> So what we what I typically tell them to do is is you know instead of writing a job plan for 40 people for the work orders but not getting any parts for them, which means you're not gaining any efficiency, get that down to you know five or ten people, and pick just one area and focus on getting them all the parts they need before they go out into the field because that's where the efficiency gain is, and so I think that approach works you know whether it's whether it's you know we're going to go through a FMEA or RCM process, or whether and or whether that's even just creating an equipment hierarchy inside the CMMS for the first time, go pick a small area because you're going to have lessons learned. So I, I think that that advice that you're giving Ryan applies to a lot of things that deal with asset management and reliability. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've got another question here. Uh, how often should instruments instrument equipment be calibrated so this probably seems like a this is probably a very broad question maybe we could boil it down into a few high-level categories um <laughs> well, it, there's a lot there's a lot around that right that's a loaded question is it fda regulated is it not fda regulated it's jason's question yeah <laughs> I, this is it, it is this is a tough so that the simplest answer is that the instrument requires calibration at a specific frequency. Some of them don't require calibration at all. Some of them require calibration every five years. Some of them require calibration every six months. Your industry, however, may decide to take a risk-averse approach, which means let's say you do a batch operation and you're running product that takes a month to create and it's worth millions and millions of dollars. You may not be willing to wait five years to find out your instrument was out of tolerance. And then I have to investigate five years for the product. And so, you know, there's, there's a balance between the risk part of it inside your business and what the instrument looks at. And I think one of the, one of the things that, Oops. Oops. Yeah. So one of the things we have to we have to do is really balance that risk approach with what the instrument is supposed to do. And so some of the ways you can do that is by monitoring what's called drift. So over time, you monitor drift of the cal of the instrument to determine whether or not in between frequencies of calibration, it becomes more and more out of tolerance. And if so, you can begin to predict at what point you'll get an out of tolerance event. And so monitoring drift and monitoring the risk of your business helps you start to narrow down specific instruments. Mm -hmm. But I think the basis of the question is really around, around that, the, the whole calibration rationalization piece, because yeah, yeah. a lot of folks can't just go with the, the embedded frequency from the vendor because of the risk to the business. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so, you know, first and foremost, make sure that your validated equipment really only says which instruments are actually critical because they'll call everything critical and then that's the biggest problem you're having so you know th this is a big giant loaded question but <laughs> make sure only critical instruments are critical and then start start monitoring drift to see if you can stretch the frequencies yeah yeah, that's a very interesting question because what I heard is it's not necessarily about the scheduled uh, schedule that the vendor gives you. It's also what's inherent to your business. It's also very custom tailored to what's important to your business. Is this is the miscalibration by point zero zero one going to be detrimental to your business, or is it going to be okay? And the the vendor doesn't know that. But you, as the as the asset owner, might. You know the interesting thing about that, Ryan, is that you'll get an out of tolerance event 
and then your organization will do an investigation and 99.999999% of the time, the output of that is, well, there was no risk to the product, we could ship it out. <laughs> but we spend all this money doing the investigation anyway. If at the end of that investigation, they were required to now not call that a critical instrument, since it didn't matter that much, things would be a lot different. Yeah. And it goes back to what's a priority. If everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Exactly right. <laughs> um, all right. So we've got one more question here. How do you, where do you start for, from in an organization where there's no reliability practice? Where do we start? Didn't we just, didn't we already answer this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a fair question. Fair. But it, it's interesting because a lot of these questions stem from like, we, we know this is what we should be doing. We know that these are best practices. Our, our facility is not doing it. Where should we start? Well, the, the, the hard part for them is that they don't know where to begin. Exactly. They, they know what the goal is but getting started is hard and and so like i said i would go out to the equipment with my maintenance guys and talk to the operators what's the top five things on this machine that's eating your lunch yeah. and then i would solution those out and make them go away and continue to move through my lines uh, to continue to improve it before i come back and try to focus on anything else and so that's the easiest way to stabilize your organization and allow you to focus on developing the maintenance practices necessary to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. But you gotta have some stability. Yeah. And I think so, the other thing you, you focus on is education. Yeah. I, I think if, if folks are in an organization today that has, <clears throat> has no approach to reliability, for me, step one would be go understand what the heck that means. Because if you're not, you know, doing an FMEA or an RCM for the sake of a piece of equipment without understanding its value proposition back to your business is a waste of time. And so educate yourself on, on what reliability really is all about and what asset management is about and educate yourself on your business so that you can understand what the value proposition of your equipment is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very fascinating, very interesting. It sounds like there's so many people who, wanna, who want to get kickstarted in this industry, learn more. But we go back, and I think, uh, Joe, you mentioned this, that there's never time in the day to focus on education. There's never any extra time in the day for a maintenance manager to go out into the plant floor and just talk about what's wrong. How do you how do you balance that? Like, quit going to meetings. Yeah, <laughs> number one, your calendar. Ninety percent of the meetings on your calendar are an email, and so what I I mean, honest, like I said, I probably wouldn't do it if I were you. But the way I went about it is, I quit going. I would talk to the plant manager and say, "Hey, is there really value in me going here? Because I think my value is out on the floor, getting you the throughput that we need to hit the numbers, so we can hit our sales projection." Yeah. So do you, do I really need to be in here or should I be out there? And every time you need to be out there. All right. Thank you. Right. Yeah. And there's no reason to go to all these meetings. It, and so what happens is as a maintenance manager, your entire eight to five is packed full of meetings. <laughs> that means you either come in at five in the morning to spend three hours doing some work that needs to get done and you stay until nine, 10 o'clock at night to try to spend more time to get work done. And so now your work-life balance is a mess because you're putting in 20 hours a day to keep a plant running. And it doesn't make sense. After six months, you're burnout and you lose interest and you're just like, this isn't gonna work. Yeah. So why not be effective in the eight to five by not attending the meetings and going out and getting the work done? Um, but again, that's me and not <laughs> everybody else. I'm a little more hard-headed and straightforward than most, but it works. I mean, I have a track record. I can, I can back up uh, <laughs> that with my track record. And so having seven, eight, nine, ten plant turnarounds, I can tell you that that's what I've done. And so, and every one of them I walked in, it was just the same as everybody else. Reactive as can be. You know, <laughs> even the clients we're working with now, it's the same thing. 
It's no, yeah. I'm not doing anything different for my clients that I did when I was a maintenance manager. <laughs> I'm not, Except you get paid more now. I'm just getting paid more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So uh, I'm curious, how many hours a day were you spending in meetings? Uh, when I first start any job, it's almost every hour of the day. It seems like you're in meetings. Like I walk in, I don't even know where the bathroom is and I've got 15 meetings on my calendar for the first day. Right. And I, I haven't even met, it takes two weeks before I get to meet all my maintenance guys. And it's been that way just about everywhere I've been. You know, you walk in and, and here, you got to go, you got to go to this meeting at eight. You got to go to that meeting at eight thirty. There's this one at nine. And I'm sitting back going, hey, hang on there, you know. Let me get the bathroom first, and then we'll figure out what my calendar, you know, <laughs> my calendar needs to look like. And so really talking to, especially your maintenance guys, sitting down and having a conversation with them and say, how's life treating you here? Yeah. And would you like to see it better? Right? And if I can help you become better, would you support me in pushing this through? Yeah. Right. And most of them, there's always the 10 percenters that you know, <laughs> they, they don't want to do anything. But for the most part, people are going to support you. And then it's what are the obstacles that you face from keeping you from doing your job? And most of the time it's tools and time. They don't give us time on the equipment and they don't give us tools. And that's a chicken or an egg thing. The reason you don't have time on your equipment is because you have no credibility because every time you do a PM and they start up the line, the machine fills, mm -hmm. right? And so you lose credibility as a maintenance guy. Okay, so we've got to work on our credibility. When we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it 110%, yeah. best we know possible. And then it's my job to blockade all the negative criticism and just keeping them going. I mean, it's... All right. I've done this too long, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. Yeah. I think the recap there is, is maybe I'll say like, look at your calendar, figure out which meetings that you might not need to attend versus maybe straight up not going and not telling anyone. <laughs> yeah. I, would always, I would always get my boss's approval. Yeah. I didn't just not show up, but I always had a way of selling it to where the morning meeting where they're talking about blaming maintenance for the night before production, I'm always in that one. And I bring data with me, right? Because yeah. I say, okay, I'll take the 20 minute breakdown we had, but based on our design rate of this equipment, we're still losing six, eight hours of downtime. So where's the rest of that time go? Yeah. And so they quit blaming me for that. So I'm always in that meeting. That's an important meeting. But for the most part, it's, Hey, we got this supplier coming in today and we want to look at this stuff. Oh, we have this weekly call to go over our 6,000 key performance indicators. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I don't need to be in here. I don't, I don't need to be in here. You know, I mean, you have 6,000 KPIs. You're not measuring anything. Yeah. So you should have maybe eight tops. I guess you're measuring everything. <laughs> Which means you're not measuring anything. Because what are you going to do with all that data? So, you know, it's those types of things where it was just getting so out of hand. Yeah. Um, especially as you gain more knowledge and people lean on you as a subject matter expert, they want to pull you more in. Oops. You know, and so it's it's hard. But it's like, I'll share with you my opinion, but we can do that offline. I don't need to come to this meeting to do that. I'm more than happy to stop by for a few minutes, give you some feedback and let you know what I think. But I really need to be focused out here, you know. And so it all, it all depends on how you handle yourself, I guess. Yes, let's work. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we actually got one more question from Jason Verley. Let's see if we could go oh, ahead. Oh, here we oh, go. No. <laughs> He already stumped us. We haven't even heard the question yet. All right. There's been a lot of talk about digital twins. I understand the concept of digital twins goes beyond just having a bill of material when an asset is deployed. For new projects and assets, a lot of this information is owned by the CapEx engineering team. What are some sources you've used to educate engineering on digital twins to show the value of passing information onto maintenance and or reliability teams? Wow, so I, I, I think 
It, that's a good question, Jason. Um, for me, the digital twin gives us an opportunity to close a gap that has always existed in the engineering turnover package. It's, it's, it's existence wouldn't be a necessity. It'd be a luxury, not a necessity. If we were actually getting those engineering turnover packages over the last, you know, 50 years, but we don't. So in the maintenance side, the asset drops on the floor. We get told, Hey, have a nice day, go operate and maintain that for the next 40 years. And you've gotten no information. In addition to that, the next time they need to do an engineering project, no one knows where the drawings are. We're, so now we're hiring an engineering firm to come out and assess all these, this stuff and make new drawings. So there's, there's the whole benefit that's associated with the fact that you didn't get the information when it was on paper. The other part of the digital twin is you can begin to do modeling, right? So you can then say, well, what happens if I, 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 you know, my capacity or my demand for chilled water goes up and you can begin to model all of that inside your, the space of, of um, I guess, the building information modeling and, and all that stuff where the digital twin resides. So I think there's a, there's a, a piece that closes the gap that existed on the paper trail side and then there's the piece that helps engineering in the future. <laughs> The trouble I see is I don't necessarily know that the, the creation of or utilization of a digital twin is going to actually cause them to put the data in the system that will get you the turnover package. I can create a digital twin that just has the process parameter information. And I still didn't go get all the other data that should have been part of the turnover package to begin with. I think that's going to be the gap. It's the same. It's going to create the same problem that we have today and not getting the turnover packages and not getting all the data. Just like any other system, yeah. if your process is currently chaos, putting in an electronic version of that simply automates the chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so I, I think there's a, a, you still have to have sound requirements on the engineering side, on the CapEx side of what must be included in the digital twin. And I think that's where maintenance and reliability have to provide those requirements to the engineering um, department. I think that's where you start to get that buy-in is helping them to develop specifications because a lot of times they don't even have them. And so if you can come in and provide them with that data, um, it allows you to develop the credibility as being a go-to person for every engineering project that they come up with. And I think that's kind of how you would help close the gap there. What's your experience here, Rob? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right? Like when we talk about data, usually like it's about that like strategic asset management data policy, right? And so this is part of it. So what data needs to be transferred over from your handover? What does that include? Like I was in a meeting actually last week and we were talking about that and defining like, what's the data that is at this step? What's the data required? What decision does that data help inform? And what's the value to the organization? Those are kind of those pieces, right? Like George, you mentioned with the calibration size side, it's about risk. Well, everything like risk is, is another way of saying dollars and cost, right? Or benefit and cost. And so that's what everything we do really boils down to. Like, how do you make your organization more profitable, more profitable, safer, better for the environment, better for the community and help them achieve their mission, vision, values, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's such an interesting and great question that, that we had from Jason. And, you know, for, for a, matter, a matter of fact, like all of the questions that we had were super insightful. I think we talked a lot about how to get started, you know, some, some unique insights into technology as well. Um, you know, I had a great time. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you to all of our experts on, on our panel for sharing so many amazing insights. Um, you know, to wrap us all up, I know we've got maybe one more minute. Can we share, do you guys want to just go around in a, in a, you know, circle and basically we could share with the, all the folks listening on how you, how they could get in touch with, with you guys in the future. 
Yeah, sure. For for Joe and I, um, we can be reached or anyone at ReliabilityX at ask at reliabilityx.com. All right. Well, let's for sure do that. And Rob? <laughs> yeah, for me, uh, you can email me at robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or subscribe to the podcast as well, Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in for today's live Q&A. I'm Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. Thanks everyone. Thank you. It's a ton of fun. Thank you. Thank you.